There we go, nice and easy. I am recording. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, what a privilege it is to serve um, you guys this morning as we continue our Living Ready series. Today is the fourth instalment, I'm sure you're all aware of that, following on from Living the Life and Living Examples delivered by Sam the first two weeks. And last week, Mike challenging us to live, to living to please God. Living to please God, sorry. Today's title is Living with Longing. Now, Sam has many gifts, as I'm sure we can all test to, uh, but he has a real good gift in giving me good titles. Uh, I don't speak that often, um, but whenever Sam emails and says, right, this one's for Adam, I just look at the title and I'm normally like, right, that is a good one. (laughs) I'm really looking forward to it. Um, And I hope this does come across as I look to challenge you this morning as we delve a bit deeper into Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. So this morning's title, The Pursuit of a Lifestyle Accompanied by a Yearning Desire. How did I come up with that, I hear you ask? Of course. Um, Quite simply, I'll just put the three words, uh, living, with and longing, into Google and wrote down their definitions. I've got to say, seeing the three definitions, it really stirred me in terms of what I'm sure this morning is going to give to us. So if you could turn with me into this rather large passage, Uh, Jonathan's going to have it up on the screens for us. But if you could turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 13. There's two kind of subheadings uh, as we go through this. So first one, Paul's longing to see them again. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavoured the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass, and as just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labour would be in vain. Timothy's encouraging report. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and that you always remember us kindly, and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another 
and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Ooh, large passage. Now what I'd really love to do, um, this might sound a bit basic to some, but what I'd really love to do is go through a verse at a time. So hopefully, please do follow, hopefully the passage will remain on the screens. Um, in some instances I'll read the verse um, as well as my comments, my kind of thoughts about them. In other times I might just say, you know, the chapter and the verse and just go through it. You with me? Right, let's go. So, kicking off. Chapter 2, verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, yet he strongly desires, strongly desires to return to the scene of his labours. This has come from a deep, deep regard for his converts. As Mike mentioned last week, Paul assumes many roles to the Thessalonians, which we'll come on to later, such as mother, brother, and so on. Using the term torn away, it kind of draws attention to Paul's kind of desolation. Actually, there's kind of a real kind of sense that, you know, I just feel torn away from you. John Stott says it had given Paul no pleasure in leaving the city. It certainly wasn't a voluntary act. So as well as a mother, brother, and other metaphors that we'll look at later, he mentions being torn away. It kind of emphasises the relationship that he has with them, the deep sorrow of being taken away to him feels like he's being orphaned. Although the separation was both forcible and painful, Paul felt that it was only temporary. Next verse, um, there's an eagerness from Paul, a strong desire to visit friends, to visit those in Thessalonica. Many commentators and theologians have varying ideas of what Paul is meaning when it says hindered by Satan. There are quite a few that I kind of um, came across. But actually the, the common kind of assumption is actually, it's kind of a general, a general sense that Satan hinders. And I'm sure we can testify to that. It is clear, however, that Paul knows that Satan has real existence. He mentions it in terms of them being hindered, but we'll look at this later in terms the church he's writing to as well. John Stott, once again, I'm going to use him quite a lot this morning. Uh, no apologies there. He says that Paul wants to affirm that his non-return was not due to indifference on his part. It's not like he couldn't be bothered or that, you know, things had come up. Um, but no, actually, rather to criticise the influence of the devil. He goes out of his way to inform them uh, that that is the case. So chapter 2, verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? He shows much confidence in them by referring to them as our hope. They're his hope. The crown speaks of one that would be given to the victor at the games. We've all seen pictures of the old kind of Olympic games and the crown that is given to the victor. That's that. Is it not you? Kind of shows some ambiguity. Surely not the people he abandoned. A comment kind of aimed at his critics within Thessalonica. 
This is one of my favourite parts of this passage. Uh, Verse 20. For you are our glory and joy. For you are our glory and joy. The fact the church are doing so well, a church that Paul got off the ground, they are his cause for pride and joy. His joy in both the world and his glory in heaven are tied up with the Thessalonians, who Christ, through Paul's teaching, they've been transformed. So we move into chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. Paul would have consulted his helpers. He would have consulted Timothy. He would have consulted Silas in terms of what to, what to do. You kind of get the impression that his anxiety was so intolerable, he was willing to go through what he was going through in Athens alone in order that he heard what was happening over at Thessalonica. It kind of gives you an idea of how much he was willing to do. Something had to be done to relieve the tension. He could bear it no more. Timothy was a key part of the team, and Paul knew this was necessary, but he still felt a sense of abandonment. Going into verse 2. So a man who is held in high esteem by Paul is sent to his friends in Thessalonica, friends who are also held in high regard, but ones he has deep concerns for. So what was the purpose of sending Timothy? It was to strengthen and encourage them in their faith. Chapter 3, verse 3, it says that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we're destined for this. The hope, that, the hope being that Timothy's mission would be that the Thessalonians aren't being fooled with small talk in the midst of being persecuted. Their afflictions were coming from many sides. The Gentiles were persecuting them. The Jews were urging them to abandon their faith and go to Judaism. Paul says we're destined for this. This affliction is no accident. They shouldn't be surprised as we look at next. But this is an integral part of being a Christian. No one ever said that when when we made that first time commitment. We've heard last week how Paul encourages them earlier on in the letter in chapter 2 verse 4. To please God who tests our hearts. goes on to say in the next verse, But when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that you were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. It is significant that Paul says, we kept telling you. We kept telling you. It wasn't like a kind of one-time message at the beginning, you're going to suffer. No, he kept, kept saying it. This is quite a challenging um, part from a commentary that I got from John Stott. It says, we must go through hardships. We must. We must go through hardships to enter the kingdom of God. In John 15, verse 20, it says, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me... They will also persecute you. 
For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labour would be in vain. With great personal weight, Paul places emphasis on his personal feelings, so he turns his feelings into action. As Sam mentioned, I think in the introduction, um, communication was not how it is now. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Um, Paul wanted to know whether their faith has survived the time of testing. And obviously the only way he could do that was obviously to send someone. His efforts, the amount he put into discipling the Thessalonians, the affection that he had for them. He was fearful that the tempter had tempted them and all their pioneering work would have just been undone, unravelled. Next up comes the game changer, Timothy's encouraging report. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as long as we long to see you. It's thought that Paul wrote the letter pretty soon after Timothy came. Where it mentions that Timothy had brought us the good news of your faith, he talks of God's saving work in them. The news brings joy to Paul. Can you imagine having that deep anxiety? And it's not just a case of WhatsApping them, how's it going? Ding, we're doing really well. No, it's that yearning. Actually, I've got to send someone, then they've got to come all the way back. And actually, it brings him joy. Reminding him of the faithfulness and the power of God. A group of young Christians who, since Paul's swift leaving, have gone on. And as we heard during the second week of this series, they are living examples. Leon Morris uh, says not only were they sound in doctrine, but they were impeccable in their conduct. Impeccable. As much as Paul wanted to see them, they too wanted to see Paul. This mutual feeling further emphasises the strength of the bond and relationship that he had with them. It says about being comforted in the next verse. As I touched upon previously, Paul's situation was far from a happy one. Top with his anxieties for the new converts, this is great news. With this news, he feels that he can rise above the difficulties that he's facing. Yeah, have you ever had that when you've been going through difficulties and you've had good news? And how do those difficulties feel when you've had that good news? Kind of sometimes just pales into insignificance. They're comforted because their lives are bound up in those of the Thessalonians. For now we live if, if you are standing fast in the Lord. What an amazing thought. To Paul, this news is life to him. It's life. It's life to him. It's not a passing thought. One minute he's pleased, the next he's thinking about something else. No, this news remained and would remain with him. To touch upon a few things that Sam mentioned a few weeks ago. Firstly, apostles occupy a lot of roles. They're pioneering. They take part in ongoing care. They're nurturing, enjoy teaching and help aligning. This is Paul. You're now getting an idea of how much these people mean to him. Relationships in the church are key. Relationships in the church are key. And I'll come back to this point later on. 
Secondly, what we give thanks for is an indication of what our heart longs for. I've nabbed that from a very good preacher sitting a few feet away from me. Paul longs that they are standing fast in the Lord and is overwhelmed, ecstatic, so many words that won't come close to how he truly feels about this news. The Thessalonians have a right relationship with Christ and are not standing, living in their own strength. In verse 9, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy we feel for your sake before our God. We've already heard in the series how the church had been so well established. The believers were young in faith, but had been tested, and they had come through those times. Paul, having taught them, may have felt proud of his work, but he knew it was all because of God. As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Praying most earnestly. Now, you know I like definitions. <laughs> um, I don't really know what earnestly means. It's one of those words that you kind of use and you kind of get an idea. It means with sincere and intense conviction. Intense conviction further expresses Paul's longing to be back with them. It's intentional. The second half of this verse centres on Paul recognising that they come short of what they should be. They come short. Wait a minute. As impeccable as their conduct is, and despite his great enthusiasm at how well they're doing, this is a perfect place to pastorally build them up. There is still more equipping to be done. There are other things to consider. As I write this sermon, um, in Leon Morris's commentary, he shares a quote from Calvin. Something of the importance of Christian teaching, referring to the verse we've just looked at. It says, how necessary it is for us to give careful attention to doctrine, for teachers were not appointed merely with a view of leading men in the course of a single day or one month. The faith of Christ, but for the purpose of perfecting the faith which has begun. It's an ongoing process. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. This comes across as a statement of conviction. Once more, his human efforts to get to them are worthless. It needs to be a divine clearing of all the obstacles. God will make straight or level the way which Satan has cut up. He's going to make it straight. Apart. The penultimate verse. Very encouraged. Where he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. As we do for you. Whatever happens... Paul prays that spiritual blessing may abound for his converts in Thessalonica. Now, as we've been reminded throughout this series, um, the church was abounding, abounding in faith, hope and love. His prayer is for enlargement, namely love. This is something that they weren't particularly lacking, that they were a very loving church. But it's not just any love that is being referred to. It was a love for all Men, 
all men. Agape love. This is a type of love that isn't natural to man, but only those who have been completely transformed by the power of God. It is the gift of God. Lastly, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, all the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Establishing their hearts, their thoughts, feelings, will, their whole inner being, the whole personality being blameless in holiness. It calls them to be set apart, fully set apart for God. So there we go. Thessalonians uh, 2.17 to 3.13. What an amazing faith-building passage and a truly honest account. Looking at every verse and pulling things from them is quite stirring. But how can we apply what we've heard into our modern day, the local church? We mentioned that Paul uses many metaphors to describe himself to the Thessalonians. His pastoral ministry is made up of four of them. The steward. The herald. We'll come back to that one shortly. The mother and the father. The steward. He was faithful in guarding the gospel. He was a herald. He was bold. Bold in proclaiming God's word. He was like a mother. He was gentle in caring for his converts. And he was like a father. He was diligent in educating them. From these four we can discern the two major responsibilities of pastoral ministry today. I'm going to go through these two and use them as my points today. That's right, I've only got two points, not three. The word of God and the people of God. So firstly, the word of God... Paul's efforts in Thessalonica were based upon strong foundations for the new converts to live by. You get the feeling that from reading the passage that God, through Paul's teaching, equipped them and gave them a firm, solid foundation to live from, especially once Paul had left. Paul was a steward, and at the time... At the time, sorry. And now we have the opportunity to be faithful in guarding the gospel for ourselves. What are your foundations made from? It says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That should be our foundation. The word of God is everything. Many, if not all of us, will will know Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 6, where it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Acknowledge him by applying studying and obeying the word of God. My second point. The people of God. Paul really does emphasise the importance of deep Christian friendship within the church. 
the investment of good relationships. However, as we've seen in the passage, Satan hinders, like I said earlier. He sees the importance of the relationship between Paul and the Thessalonians. And that is the same with us. Satan hinders us in various ways. Says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8 that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If he cannot keep us from church and from listening to the preaching of church leaders, he'll try to call our friendships with other believers. Sounds like a bit of a spoken word, doesn't it? I'll say that again. If he cannot keep us from church, And from listening to the preaching of church leaders, he will try to call our friendships with other believers. The enemy tries so hard to rob you of friendships with other Christians in order to hinder not only God's work in your life, but that of the church as well. Now, I've had a crazy busy week um, and often say that sometimes just to justify not being able to do things I'm sure you can all relate oh my week's been so crazy I probably could have done things to change the craziness but I've had a crazy busy week these next two quotes both from Fillmore who I think is excellent really challenged me if you've not heard of Fillmore or seen his books he does amazing commentaries and he's got these two quotes that have just really kind of stuck with me Um, both at the beginning of preparation of doing this and even more so this morning. Being too busy to invest in warm friendships with Christians means we are too busy with this world to invest in one of the few things that will last forever. I'll say that again. Being too busy to invest in warm friendships with Christians now means we are too busy with this world to invest in one of the few things that will last forever. Adam, can we meet up? I'm really sorry, mate. Um, I've got marking to do. What's it about? Oh, don't worry. Adam, can we meet up? I I really need to speak to you. I'm really sorry. I'm, I'm I'm with my family at the moment. Loads of scenarios that you can possibly put in your mind of actually, you know, family's important, work's important... But our Christian friendships, they're going to be eternal. The next one for more uh, really spoke to me. Really, really did. I kind of, uh, looking through the commentary notes that Sam printed off, and it just kind of came out of the page. He believes that Paul does not see Christian fellowship as a quick cup of tea after a church service. He sees it as the only thing strong enough to enable us to survive the persecution that is coming. Now I know, I think Mike said last week, about, you know, in this country we don't really see persecution that much. But I'm sure the more and more you start desiring that life to be totally set apart for him, I'm pretty sure that persecution may start to happen a bit more. Even Paul, an apostle, made time for, listened to, prayed for, with, sat with the Thessalonians, and so on. Intentional relationship building, not for his glory, but to the one who sent him. 
John Stott says, but there is no substitute for the stimulus of face-to-face fellowship when we are mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now this isn't a call to ask everyone to be best friends. I'm not standing here and saying, look, you've all got to be best friends with one another. We have often been referred to as a very welcoming social church. But what I'm calling for, what I'm calling for is an enlargement, an expansion of our very very beings. That we would be intentional in our friendships with fellow Christians. That we would be fervent in our prayer life. That this agape love that I spoke of earlier, this gift of God would be evident in our midst and outside of these walls. That we would be a church that lives by example, that lives to please God. So how did the Thessalonians lead by example? How was their example renowned and growing in reputation? It was their impeccable conduct. But what does that mean? How, how can it be? Similarly to what I mentioned in my previous point, it may all be down to foundations. That they worship together with a pastoral love. Looking out for one another. Praying for one another. You see pastoral love. Is parental love. That is its quality. The truth. Sorry truth. Is hard. If it is not softened. Softened. By love. And love is soft. If it is not strengthened. By the truth. If we are to be people who grow in love for one another, truth will abound and joy will come forth. As we develop current friendships and see God move, they will be our glory and joy, as it mentions in the passage. That's what happens when you invest in relationship. Yeah? When you see friends going through good times and you know, they get good news, your joy increases. And that's what we have to be in the church. That as we pray, as we fervently pray for one another, with one another, that we'll start to see things happen and that will increase our pride and our joy. So how can we respond? There is a real need, I believe, in there being an open and honest church. You may be sitting there thinking, "Mm, I'm not sure this is really applicable. What I mean by this is being part of the local church where truth abounds. Truth abounds in love. Where friendships are deepened and the byproduct of us, this, sorry, as I've said, is more joy. But it's more joy within churches. It's more joy within our church, with other other churches in Faversham, other churches within relational mission and so on. That as we journey together and challenge one another, our joy would be from that. Are you ready for that kind of challenge? That call upon your life. This call to radically turn the world upside down. I read that as I was reading Acts 17, just to get a bit of context. They pretty much said about Paul and Silas, who are these people that have come and turned our world upside down? Yeah, it's kind of a crazy kind of a term to use. But who are we going to be? To be a living people, not lukewarm, living by example, living to please God, living, living in longing.
Now, you may remember the alternative title, sorry. You may remember my alternative title for this morning's talk. The Pursuit of a Lifestyle Accompanied by a Yearning Desire. Kind of doesn't make a lot of sense when you stick them together. So I'm going to put some things to go with them. The Pursuit of a Lifestyle Built on Firm Foundations. Accompanied by each other journeying in faith. And lastly, a yearning desire. A yearning desire to what? Be a part of a church that is renowned for being full of faith, hope and love. I'd just like to ask the band to start making their way back up. Um, And we're going to sing This Is My Desire. It says, This is my desire to honour you. Lord, with all my heart I worship you. All I have within me I give you praise. All that I adore is in you. Should we stand? Yeah, Father, I just want to pray. Lord, this is such an encouraging verse, but at the same time, it's so challenging. The challenge to to be in pursuit of a lifestyle. Not just a walk, a pursuit. Built on firm foundations. To be accompanied by each other. To have a yearning desire to be a part of a church that is renowned for being full of faith, hope and love, Lord. And I just pray that as we sing this song, a song that we've sung 10, 20 years Lord, I pray that this song would have new meaning to us this morning. Lord, that you would soften our hearts.